the Lord be with you. And also with you. Well, good morning. And welcome everyone to Copper Hill First United Methodist Church. I can't tell you what a blessing and absolute joy it is to be able to come and worship with you. Find our opening prayer this morning on page number six. We begin with our opening prayer. Let us pray. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hidden. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts, and by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you, worthily magnify your holy name, through Christ our Lord. Amen. As the scriptures are open this morning, Lord, we pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you would say to us today. Amen. I'm reading from the New Testament, uh, Romans 9, 1-5, Paul's anguish over Israel. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. From Matthew 14. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Our hymn story this morning is on page 378. You're not already there. Amazing Grace. There is more than I have had time to say this morning about this hymn and the man who wrote it. Uh, Don Newton, he was the son of a ship's captain. He became a ship's captain. His job as a ship's captain was to sail up and down the west coast of Africa, picking up Africans, loading them in his ship, his ship 
and taking them to be sold in the Caribbean islands and on the east coast of what was then the very early United States. Well, it wasn't the United States then. He did this for several years. And one time he was headed home with his ship and there was a terrible storm. And he lost some sailors overboard. Uh, his ship was in danger of foundering with its load and he, uh, in desperation, as he was clinging to the wheel of the ship, he looked up and he said, Lord, have mercy on us. Well, it didn't happen immediately, but the, the storm began to ease. It was another 11 hours before they were safe, but no more people were lost. Uh, he did not immediately become uh, a Christian. He, this, this was not a, an overnight thing but it lingered in his mind and he very shortly after gave up the slave trade uh, he was a self-taught person he was encouraged by john wesley to consider becoming a preacher and eventually he did um, he it, it was a, a a common practice in those days for preachers to write for ministers to write songs, to write poems to bring to their congregations. And so he was 47 when he wrote Amazing Grace. Um, and as a preacher, not only did he write poems and songs, uh, he also began to campaign against uh, slavery, uh, to campaign for the abolition of slavery. So he admitted to himself and to God that this was not a best thing that he could have done. So Amazing Grace is, it's a conversion story. It's his. And it is, is written so that as we sing it, it often is our story of our conversion. So um, we're going to sing. Romans 9, 10, and 11 are very controversial. 
uh, to say the least. And that's because we have removed them uh, from, removed these chapters from the rest of the book of Romans, and we've isolated them. And it's resulted in anti-Semitism that has left its mark on church history, a mark very much against the church. You have to check your feelings. You have to check your thoughts and your words and surrender to God in prayer and repentance any such thing that goes against His teaching and His path. You know, as a kid, I remember saying many times, usually to my sister, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. As I stood there like a giant. But if we were being honest with ourselves... Wouldn't we have to say that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will crush my spirit? And sometimes words can even inspire to terrorize, destroy, and kill. You know, most of the time I have nothing but good things to say about Martin Luther. Although I do like to kid... uh, all of those who have Lutheran backgrounds, which seems to be about half this church. Martin Luther was a man whose writings, teachings, and preachings uh, helped create and sustain the Protestant movement in Germany. And he also wrote some not-so-nice things about the Jews. His words against the Jews would survive and live on And would it inspire and be an inspiration to the Nazis against the Jews? Whether words are written or spoken, friends, words are powerful. Words take on meaning in people's lives. They can raise people up to a level of inspiration and love, helping them to excel. Or they can tear down, isolate And bring people down to the pit of depression. I'm almost positive if we went around the room, everyone in here could give an account or many accounts, especially in our younger years, when words rent our spirits in two. Words are powerful. And so words should be chosen very carefully. And even more to home, even to this day, many Christians will gleefully believe in the idea of supersessionism, which states that the church has superseded the Jews as God's chosen people. Friends, I don't know if you've read 9, 10, and 11 before, but Paul is not gleeful about Israel rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, even though he believes that that rejection has opened the door for us Gentiles to be grafted on to the tree of salvation. He is absolutely torn up over this rejection, and he says he would gladly give up his life and his salvation for his people. And where many people and theologians go go wrong is they leave Israel completely out of the equation 
And the Old Testament becomes not only the Old Testament, it might as well be the irrelevant Testament in many people's minds. But God made a promise. He made a promise to Israel. He made a covenant with His chosen people. And being God, He will honor His commitment to His people. In the end, it will be the mystery of God's mercy. And when you consider Romans 9, 10, and 11, you cannot separate them out from the rest of the letter, especially what has come before these chapters. How do these chapters read when you consider that right before we get chapter 8, with that famous rhetorical question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? If Paul is so torn up over this rejection, how do you think Christ feels who died for them just as he died for you? Friends, our words should be born in humility and point to the mystery and glory of God found in his mercy and his grace. Especially when you consider that God will honor his commitment to his people both Jew and Gentile. Now, I think where we get lost in our thinking is that we imagine that there are special rules for those who want to be inside this sanctuary. There is a special application in which you will have to check a few boxes before we can submit your application for salvation. And if we find anything wrong, if we find anything that will raise an eyebrow, much less a red flag, then we might not be able to process your application. And those rules, depending on which church you're actually sitting in at the moment, are different for each church, it seems. And those rules can change without notice. And if you haven't figured it out yet, those rules of the church mean absolutely nothing compared to the love that Jesus Christ has for you. I have seen time and time again Christians saying to other Christians, this one or that one, that they are not true Christians because of the church they choose to attend. How do we know this? Are we endowed with the knowledge and wisdom from the mind of God? How do we know that God loves Protestants more so than Catholic? It's absolutely amazing to me that we can point to an individual, much less a worldwide church, and say they're not Christian because they don't worship like me. Their application will most certainly be denied. What about this church and what about that church? They don't read the right Bible, they don't sing the right music, they don't say the right prayers, they don't preach the right way, they don't dress the right way, they don't talk the right way, and they are not from the right neighborhood. And what we are really saying is they don't look like me. They don't act like me, they don't live life like me. 
Friends, if your idea of Jesus looks like you, then you might have a problem. Today we are coming to God's table. It's a table of grace and mercy. Not just for us, but for the whole world. For anyone who wants to eat with Christ and be reconciled to God and to one another as brother and sister. It is an open table. And it's amazing that when we read these chapters by Paul, his words are born out of compassion with a faith that is drenched in the mercy of God. I think back to a story in the Gospels where Jesus is teaching to that great crowd. And as their time was nearing an end, He didn't want to send them away hungry. And He had compassion for them. And He tells His disciples, as He's still telling His disciples today, you give them something to eat. It was about compassion. It was about mercy. It had nothing to do about rules in our application process. We need to expand the reach of this table, both spiritually and physically, to all those who hunger and thirst in their bodies and in their souls. So listen to what one author writes concerning the church here. This author says, I have a friend who has been described as, among many other things, a Buddhist, an Anglican sympathizer, and an anti-realist about God. Although he's not a Christian, he loves chapels and likes to kneel quietly beneath stained glass. He imagines that others perceive him as trespassing in our space and in our story. Paul and Jesus challenge me to see that there can be no possibility of trespass because the story is always much larger than we imagine. Paul claims that no one is out, neither the people of Israel for accepting the Christian story, nor the non-Jewish people for being a part of Israel's story. God's story is a far greater story, one able to hold all stories and all characters. And even more, Jesus insists that the story is one of enveloping compassion, that all that the people have to do is to be fed, is to be hungry and in need. No creeds, no spiritual or cultural pedigrees, no vows or loyalty are required. You give them something to eat. Jesus charges His disciples then and today to all who come, whether to be healed, to be fed, to doubt, or simply to kneel beneath stained glass. Jesus insists that the church claim a story big enough to hold them all. And there is something that we can learn here from Paul about his attitude 
toward those that the church would identify as the lost. In many churches, the lost are seen as black sheep that the church wants nothing to do with. People outside of the church would use words like judgmental and hypocritical to define people inside the church. And many posts on my social media uh, these days, though, are very quick to point out that Christians seem occupied with partisan political ideology that is perceived as being disconnected from the teachings of Christ. But the most common theme heard underneath all of these complaints from people outside the church is their belief that the church does not care about them. Some years ago, Bishop Al Gwynn opened the North Carolina Annual Conference with these heart-wrenching words. He said, I wish I had just a few people who would wet their pillows at night with tears over the lost. I remember some years ago sitting in a church service where the woman seated behind me was in inconsolable tears over the lost. And people couldn't understand it. And Paul, though, says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. What if we cared that much about those who Jesus wants us to reach out to? If you remember, God's dream is that none shall perish. For Jesus says that He will leave the 99 and go and search for the one. And although if things continue to deteriorate in the Western church the way it has been, we're going to have to change that saying to where we're going to leave the one and go and search for the 99. But we look at Paul's statement and we say, well, it's, it's nothing to get torn up over, right? I mean, what will be, will be. And Jesus seems completely turned around and leaving the 99 to go and search for the one. We would say that's absolutely foolish. You should protect what you have instead of foolishly risking what little you do have to go and find the one who the 99 probably don't want in the fold in the first place. There were a few times in my childhood, well, maybe more than a few, when my mother would say to me, her most perfect son, she would say, boy, it's time for an attitude adjustment. Every time I heard those words, the Holy Spirit would say, oh, you better run as fast as you can. Maybe those who call themselves Christian, maybe we need an attitude adjustment to where we start caring for the people that God cares about. Where we start loving those whom Jesus loves. Where we start reaching out for those the Holy Spirit is working to reach. What if we went to sleep at night wetting our pillows with tears for the lost. 
Maybe if we prayed with the passion and heartbreak of Paul, as he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And as we grow with God in our prayers, maybe we would be like Jesus. As God teaches us to concern ourselves with the one who is lost rather than the 99 who are saved. What if we acted more like Jesus? Did church more like Jesus? And lived life more like Jesus? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Praise God. 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 Praise God.